Romans chapter 8, church. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be reading from verses 18 through 25. I know your bulletin probably says verse 23. And that's probably where we're going to stop, but I put down, I'm going to read until 25. 18 through 25. Not even 11.30, so hopefully I, can, I got enough time to cover what I have here. They, believe it or not, there's a lot of material here in this one particular passage. Um, <clears throat> more than I knew myself. Um, looking, up, looking it up this week and studying it, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe how much I did not know um, from this particular passage, this particular text. Hey, Amen. If you have it, I'm just delaying it, waiting for you. Amen. Romans 8, 18 through 25. And the Bible reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, re- for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That last verse. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. Father, I thank you so much for this particular passage. And I thank you, Lord God, in advance for the wisdom that you're going to give us and for the understanding that you're going to flood our hearts with this morning as you reveal, as you unfold to us the mysteries, the the truths of your word. Father, this is Our life's substance. We need to hear from you this morning. Make it plain. Make it clear. Help us to understand it. But more importantly, help us to live it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. How many of you, I want to start off with a question, sort of like an illustration. How many of you have ever been given the promise regarding a special event from your parents? A special event. For your own life. Sometime in your past, perhaps when you were a child, one of your parents or both of your parents, um, because your birthday was coming up or because of a quinceanera or sweet 16 or graduation even, your parents made a promise to you that you were going to be surprised one day with a special, special event. But the thing is, they never gave you the official particulars, no date you weren't told who was going to be involved or when it was going to happen, etc., etc., etc. You were just simply given 
the assurance every single day or as often as you begged for it, that it would, in fact, come to pass. And so you were left with just simply waiting patiently for that, for that day. You didn't know when, but you were left with this idea of having to wait patiently for that event because you did not know when it was going to happen. You just simply were given the assurance that it was, in fact, going to come to pass. That sort of, in some way, it's sort of Paul's context um, in our particular, in this particular passage today, uh, regarding the adoption or the fulfillment of the adoption in our lives. We know that according to the Word of God, God has given us the promise that one day He is going to fulfill His redemptive plan for our lives. That one day is going to be fulfilled. We have a strong measure of it, if we can put it that way, that has been, in fact, fulfilled in our lives. I'm not going to be saved one day. I am saved. But it doesn't mean that I am perfect. None of us are perfect in this room. So it it, it means that there's still work that needs to be done. Not on our part, but on God's part. Because we still possess this physical body. And the promise is that one day this body itself is going to be redeemed. This imperfection will take on perfection. This mortality will take on immortality. And it's going to happen one day very soon. So the process is not complete yet. And so the groaning and the longing that Paul the Apostle describes in this one particular text is a reference to that. That one day, one day everything is going to be made complete. We still have this imperfect body. And the passage, or rather, the emphasis of this one particular passage is that we are to endure to the end patiently as one does in a marathon. How many here have ever been involved in a marathon? You, right, Tim? A marathon? No? A fi- oh, that's, that's a marathon in my mind, dude. I can't make it one mile. How about you, Michelle? A marathon? No? One, one time? Very good. About 40 years ago, maybe? No? No, very I'm sorry. That was a joke. I'm sorry. This is, Daniel said, that ain't cool, Pastor. That ain't, that ain't cool at all. But when we involve ourselves in a race like that, like on Mondays when I go out on a bike ride, as far as I'm concerned, it's a marathon. It's, a, it's, it's distant. And I, I like to try to go a little further every time. But I know that in my mind, I have to be wise. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I kind of pushed myself a little bit too hard. Um, I did not eat adequately. And as a result, I nearly fainted out there. I nearly fainted. It wasn't hot enough for that. But I didn't have the energy, so I depleted everything that I had in my system. Call it amino acids or proteins or whatever. I burned everything but fat, right? I still got that with me. But I burned, every, I burned everything else, and as a result, I, I, I collapsed. I, I did not have what I needed to finish the race. And so this is a journey. And we've been given the assurance by God that one day, that one day, God is going to complete the redemptive process. But not yet. It's the reason why even the earth, even the material world, we're going to get into that. It's the reason why the material world or the inanimate world 
is groaning and crying out, Lord, long, when, Lord God, when? When? And so that longing is undergirded by this hope that God has given us. The hope that we derive from the promise that has been given to us. And so what do we do? We wait patiently. We endure as in a marathon. And we continue moving forward knowing that God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son or son of man who is capable of lying. That's Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is going to finish the work one day. Let me turn your attention to our theme, as I have been doing quite regularly. Our theme for this year, 2020, is surrender. And the signature verse for this theme is Romans 12.1. And it reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren. Brethren. See, we're in there. We're in there. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. And my intent with this passage, at least mentioning it to you this morning, is that it serves as context support to our lesson today. It serves as context support. In other words, the message of surrender in Romans 12.1, it answers the question, how do we wait patiently? How do we wait patiently? We wait patiently by giving ourselves over to God on a daily basis. We surrender ourselves over to Him. And it's not easy, because the fact is, the, the, He hasn't promised that, that over our heads, metaphorically speaking, the sky is going to be blue every single day. On the contrary. On the contrary, most of the time, for some of us, that it, it's overcast, it's cloudy at best. Because there are circumstances that we're dealing with today. And, and, and no sooner we come out of a difficult situation, we, it seems as if we're walking into a new one. Doesn't it seem to be that way? Let me see your hand if you can attest. Rhonda said, me, 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 me. And, and, and it is so true. And yet one thing we know for sure, that one day God is going to complete this process. One day, as we were singing earlier, one day we will stand before God with the holy angels, our hands lifted up high. We're going to be laying on our faces and the process is going to be over. We're going to be able to worship the Lord for eternity. Hebrews 12, 1 and 3. If you want to go there, you can. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 12 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. I like that word. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We have to endure. It's a journey. It's a race. It's a marathon. But we have to endure. It's not about how fast you get there. We've got to pace ourselves, because one day is going to happen. So as we consider our lives within this particular Christian context, 
Paul begins our text today by encouraging us not to compare current, cir- current circumstances with future glory in heaven. Look at verse 18. Paul encourages us today not to compare current circumstances with future glory in heaven. You cannot make that comparison. Verse 18 reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Paul's paraphrase is this. I know what you're going through. Times are tough. But keep your perspective. Our suffering today and our future glory tomorrow are greatly disproportionate. Therefore, do not compare them. There's a vast world between the two. And isn't that so true? They are greatly disproportionate. What we are enduring today doesn't compare with what, we, what, with what we're going to experience tomorrow, vice versa. There are troubles here. We are conflicted, we are afflicted, we are perplexed, and on and on, on a daily basis. And most of the time, I can't, I struggle with trying to determine up from down, left from right, and trying to make sense of the circumstances that invade my life. At best, I am confused. It's just an emphasis. I have my bearings somewhat. But when we compare what we experience today or in this lifetime with the way it's going to be in the future, we are confused. Isaiah had, having that vision with, with the Father in chapter 6, I believe it is. I think that's your favorite passage. You've mentioned it quite a few times. Isaiah chapter 6, he had that vision where he saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He was high and he was high and he was high and lifted up. And what was Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am undone. I am undone. Because there was that immediate contrast. It's going to be glorious in the future, guys. Amen, somebody. It's going to be glorious, and it's going to happen very, very, very soon. I want you to look at a particular clause in that particular, in in verse 18. I want you to read it with me again. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time. I was curious about that phrase because I realized that it comes up in different sections of the Bible. This present time. And then I looked up the, the Greek for it. And there's a wonderful app. I may have mentioned this already, but in the event that I didn't, I want to share it with you now. It's a wonderful app, perhaps the best Bible app that you can download. Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible. Because it breaks down the verse in every, every aspect to the very last detail of it. And I realized, I realized that that phrase, as I stated already, comes up over and over again in the Bible. It's a reference to this epoch or this age. It's not to be equated with our common phrase, this present moment. They're not the same. Paul the Apostle was referring to this present age. And he was contrasting this present age with the age that is to come. And in context, the age that is to come takes place after the resurrection. Because that is the main theme of this passage. The resurrection. This fulfillment of adoption, fulfillment of God's redemptive process for our lives, takes place after 
the resurrection. So it's so important to understand that this present age, the New Testament, as I stated already, actually uses it a lot. And here, in this age, we are still contending with sin, death, corruption, tribulation, etc., etc., etc. After the resurrection, in the age that is to come, those things will be a thing of the past. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. I can't wait. I am so tired of the inconsistencies of this natural life of mine. I think Paul the Apostle, I forget the passage, but just off the top of my head, I remember Paul the Apostle, he was debating this, or he was contemplating this. He says, I want to go, I want to go, but then I know there's so much work that still needs to be done, so I want to stay. I want to go and I want to stay, betwixt and between, the King James Version says. Betwixt and between. I want to go because I know that it's greater glory to be absent from the body is to be is to be present with the Lord. But yet to stay and to finish the work that God has given to us means that somebody else is going to hear about Jesus. Somebody else is going to be encouraged. Those of you who are leaders in this church, you are an encouragement to more people than you are capable of realizing. Sometimes we, we get discouraged as leaders in this church. And that goes for anybody in any particular role in this church. Because life is difficult. But yet the reality is that people are being encouraged by our ministries. Isn't that right, Janine? We encourage people all the time. All the time. So we got to fight the good fight, Paul the Apostle said. Fight the good fight because one day, one day, one day. One day. Thank you, Jesus. So Paul the Apostle is trying to shape the perspective of his readers. I want to read the passage to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go there if you want. I'm going to read 9, 10 verses. It's important. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. I hear the app. I hear the app. And I'm going to read. It says, For we know that if this tent, that if the tent... That is, our earthly home is destroyed. Talking about the body. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan. Being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. But that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God. Who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. You're talking about perspective? It's right there. And that's what Paul the Apostle is trying to establish. Because this redemption thing, or the lack of its complete fulfillment, was a burden in the lives of many people, in the mind 
according to the perspective of many people. And as to, wait a minute, you promised me this, that, and the other? And it hasn't happened yet. When is this going to come to pass? How many of you have encountered an, unbe- an unbeliever, and maybe before you came to Christ, these words came out of your mouth as well? You Christians are always talking about that the Lord is coming soon and it hasn't happened yet. You've been preaching that for thousands of years and it hasn't happened yet. And many, because of their ignorance, fail to come into the fold, fail to consider the things of God, fail to give their lives over to Jesus Christ for their salvation because they believe that it's phony, that it's fake, that there's no way to validate or no realization, no fulfillment, no completeness in the things of God. And they conclude that we as Christians are just simply wasting our time. Is that the case? In no way, shape or form. We are to preach that he is coming soon because we have that assurance. We have that hope based on a promise. We just simply don't know when it's going to happen. Although I kind of heard last week Tim saying that it's going to happen next year, April 20, something like that. (laughs) That's not true. That's not true. Actually, he corrected me when I made that statement. Revealed. Look at verse 18 again. So we know that from the verse already, it's about perspective. And we also know that this present time is a reference to this age. It's not about my suffering per se. It's about enduring while in this age. But there's something else that's interesting in this verse. In the last part of 18, it says revealed to us. For I consider That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Number one, it speaks of the certainty of the revelation in the future. The certainty concerning the revelation that will unfold in the future. Paul speaks of a glory laid up for us and it is the guarantee of salvation In Christ today. If you know Jesus Christ today, then you can rest assured in hope that one day the completeness of your entire existence, of your this redemption thing that we've been talking about, that it will in fact come to pass. It's just going to happen. I want to read something to you in this regard. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will. That's absolute. And Jesus Christ was amazing when he used words. I mean, when he used the word, you, I mean, you could take it to the bank. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's a fact. It's going to come to pass. We don't know when, but it's going to come to pass. But there's something else concerning this phrase, reveal to us. So secondly, it's important to note that Paul's use of the word reveal does not necessarily refer to something that has already been created for us. We know that heaven is real and 
that it is perfect and complete in so many different ways, but there are some aspects of our future glory that have not been created already. Remember the context of the passage. It's talking about redemption. This groaning, this longing for perfection, for completeness. Heaven dimensions are probably laid up. And by the way, I don't know about you, but I put a bid in. Did you get the memo? You didn't get the memo, um, Don? You have to put a memo in for, or rather receive the memo. You have to put, submit an application for where you want your mansion in heaven. Lois, you didn't get it either, I take it. Well, guess what? I put mine in years ago. My mansion is right next to the Lord's. Right next door. Don't, don't hate. It, it is what it is. You know, first come, first serve. That's what he told me. So, we know that so much, because we read it in the Bible, so much of heaven is it, glorious. We know that. And it's already created. But in context, I'm still living in this corrupt body. I'm not perfect yet. So in context, I have yet to receive the fulfillment of God's redemptive process. You and I as well, we are all included in that category. So, again, with regard to context, we, we're still waiting for. So that's not something has already been created. My body, the, my glorious body, your glorious body hasn't been created yet. Revealed. We're talking about revealed. It means in this context that it's going to be bestowed to us. It's not going to unfold. It's not going to be revealed in the sense that it's already created. No, not so. When the trumpets sound, just like that, this corruption will take on incorruption. This mortality will take on immortality. That's when it's going to happen. Revealed to us. I want you to look at verse 23. I've stated it, but I want you to see it. It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Right there. The redemption of our body. God hasn't completed everything yet. That's going to happen when we take on immortality. Look at verse 19 now. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Considerable difference of opinion exists regarding the interpretation of this one particular verse. I looked it up. I read the commentaries and I pulled my hair out. Because every single one of them had something different to say about this one particular verse. And you know why? It's because it's almost impossible to make a connection contextually. It's almost impossible to make a connection uh, between verse 19 and the preceding verse. Verse 18. Paul seems to, I don't know, fall off the page. And he talks about you and I in verse 18. You and I. And then he seems to be talking about something else. And the question is, what 
to what was Paul referring? To what was he referring when he uses the word, the phrase, the creation? Look at the verse again. For the, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In that verse alone, we see a distinction, at least in my mind, there's a distinction between the creation that he is now talking about and the sons of God. Waiting, the creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. He's not, he couldn't possibly be talking about the same thing. We are not included right there in the, the creation. And because we don't have a whole lot of information, we have to use the process of deduction, right? And I'm going to do my best to try to lay this out for you. What I'm, I want to read a passage. Go over with me because I want you to see this. Go to Psalms 98. I want you to see this. Say amen when you have it. Psalms 98. You okay, buddy? Don't look around. Don't look around you. Amen? You got it? Psalms 98, look at verses 4 through 9. 4 through 9. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. What is that, Jenny? L-Y-R-E? Lyre? Is that a harp? Okay, they should have just put harp in there. <laughs> really? Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now listen to the next part carefully because this is what's relevant. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills Sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What's, what's the point? The point is that the psalmist right here uses <clears throat> the idea of personification. How many of you have ever heard that word before? Personification. We, we do it. We use it in our drawings all the time. For example, you, you paint uh, a picture of the sun... And then you put eyes and a nose and a smiling mouth on it. That's personification. That's sort of giving life to an inanimate object. It's what that means. And so Psalmist uses personification here. He says, let the, let the, what's he says? Let the, let the rivers clap their hands. Like, really? What's he saying? What's he saying? That's just, um, they, 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 well, just that. Personification. Now go back to Romans 8. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's verse 19. For the creation. For the creation. Now, I submit to you, and I'm going to show you some evidence to this point. But I submit to you that Paul the Apostle is also using personification in this one particular text. He's referring to the non-rational creation of God. Like animals and the material world. Etc. That not only, God bless you, 
that, that we as believers are not the only ones longing for the fulfillment of redemption, but that creation is as well. And I'm going to show that to you. Hopefully we can unfold this here. Um, is it possible that with, with, when Paul the Apostle says creation, that he was referring to angels? Or that he included angels? That, that, that they are longing for? The, the answer is, it can't possibly be because they were not made subject to vanity or to the bondage of corruption. Look at verse 20 and 21, so you can see this. Angels could not possibly be included. It says, for the, for the creation was subjected to vanity or futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Angels haven't been subjected to bondage, to corruption, to vanity. Now I'm just talking about angels. I'm not talking about fallen angels. Just angels. These angels are still in their place. Now let's go on. Is it possible that in this phrase, the creation, that Paul was referring to Satan and demons? It's not. Because they cannot be regarded as longing for the manifestation of the sons of God, which is what it says, which is what it says in the text. And they will not share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Look at verse 19 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So Satan and demons cannot be included because they're not eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Does it make sense? Deduction is what we're doing here. Look at verse um, 21 as well. Once again, we're going to do this repeatedly. I'm going to give you the heartache, the headache that I gained while studying this. It says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, to corruption. Is it? Can we include Satan and the demons in that? They're eagerly waiting to be set free from the bondage of corruption? No, no, not at all. Those jokers are going to be hailed into the lake of fire for eternity. So is it possible that Paul was referring to the children of God? Is it possible that he, when he used the phrase creation? No, it's not possible because, because they are distinguished from the creation Paul is referring to. Look at verse 19 again. A little redundant, but I got to prove this to you. It's not talking about the children of God. Verse 19 says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a distinction there between creation and the sons of God. Now look at verse 21 as well. Once again, it says that that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's that distinction once again. Creation and the freedom that... That Christians are going to experience one day, that creation itself is going to share in that as well. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, boom, there's a distinction right there. And not only creation, but we ourselves. I don't know if you see it the way I see it, but there's a distinction. Let's move on. How about the idea concerning mankind in general? When Paul the Apostle said the creation, was he referring to mankind in general as well? And according to this text, it's not possible because mankind wasn't subjected to vanity unwillingly. It was a voluntary act of transgression on the part of mankind. Verse 20 says that. Not willingly. I don't subscribe 
to the idea that we were subjected to vanity or futility against our will. I, I don't subscribe to that. Some other systematic may teach that, but I don't subscribe to that. How about unbelieving, unbelieving um, mankind? Is it possible that when Paul used that phrase, the creation, he was referring to them? It's not possible because the earnest expectation of verse 19 does not characterize them. It does not characterize them. Look at verse 19 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Their unbelievers are not going to be included. They're not eagerly waiting for what you and I are waiting for. So when Paul uses the phrase, this is the conclusion, the creation in this context, he's not referring to rational, God's rational creation, mankind. He's referring to, I use that word personification, the material world and perhaps even the animal kingdom, etc., etc. Et we don't have that information, but I did deduce Mankind, rational creation, it's not included in that because there's a distinction between the two. So with that in mind, let's move on to the next, to the next verse where we discover why the creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why is the creation eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God? Number one. Let me read this first. Let me read the, um, read the verse with me, verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, but depending on your version, to vanity. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So number one, of creation, it's stating that it was subjected to futility. Mankind wasn't the only element of God's creation that was once perfect. A, it's the idea that creation is crying out to God for redemption as well. B, consider what we've already stated, that the, the roaring of our ocean. So, or consider the, the fact, this idea that the earth is shaking and the violent storms that take place on a daily basis someplace around the world. I mean, we have all of these, this natural phenomena that's taking place. And how do we categorize, characterize that? What, what do we say about those things? Well, according to Paul the Apostle in this text, if you believe, at least the way I laid it out, that these are birth pains, childbearing pains, childbearing pains. And have you noticed that if you listen to the news often enough, these childbearing pains are intensifying? As time passes, it gets worse. I mean, we're experiencing perhaps more earthquakes now than ever before. Maybe not so much impacting Norwalk, but it's happening all over the, the, the in, rather in some, some areas of the state of California. And how about in the East Coast, something that my wife and I are extremely acquainted with? We're always dealing with rain. Now, there's usually the outer band of a, of a hurricane that's impacting Florida or Georgia or Southern Calif um, uh, Carolina, South Carolina. 
But there's always a, a, a hurricane in the East Coast. Always. And we're always being impacted by it. And it's intensified. It's getting worse. Especially as the waters warm up more and more. It gets worse. Well, these are childbearing pains. The point is that even creation is longing for redemption. That even creation is longing for redemption. The second point here is that the creation was subjected not of its own will. The creation was subjected, this is verse 20, not of, not of its own will. In other words, Paul says, subjected to, to futility, not willingly. This does not mean that the material world, for example, was able to choose anything for itself because it's inanimate, right? doesn't have any life, per se, of its own, rational life of its own. So, so the creation, the material world, could not choose. The emphasis is on the following phrase of the text. Look at verse 20 with me once again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But because of him who subjected it. That's the emphasis. So what happened? Well, it happened in the, in the, in the very beginning. When man, mankind was given simple instructions by God. You could do this, that, and the other, but except this. Don't touch that one tree over there. Don't eat from that tree over there because the day you do, you're surely going to die. And as a consequence, the earth was cursed. If you read, let me see if I have a text for you here. I'd like to read something for you. I don't see it. Uh, maybe delete it. But in Genesis chapter 3, um, I think it's verses 17 and 18. Gen- let's go there. Let's go. I believe that's it. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Thank you, Lord, for my memory. <clears throat> yeah, that's it. Very good. Everybody there, say amen. It says, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Hmm. Hmm. Chewy, chewy, chewy. Some of the women said, I get you. I get you, let me see if you get a birthday gift from me, Jack. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. Oh, look at that. So roses, once upon a time, did not have thorns on it. Wouldn't that have been nice? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to, and to dust you shall return. So as a result of man's rebellion, the earth was, the ground was cursed. And it's not yielding automatically anymore, except for some reason here in California. Lord have mercy, no matter where you, I can walk around my block with empty bags and come back filled with oranges and uh, avocados and all sorts of stuff. And avocados, right? You got lemons too? No, avocados? Um, Oranges, right? And lemons? I went to the Marls the other day, and he gave me two big bags like this of lemons. Lemons and, and tangerines. This must have been a million of them. So what we do, we stuck them in the, what do you call that thing? Blender? Not the blender, the, the juicer. We stuck them in the juicer. 
And by the way, my wife put peels and all in there. No, I ate it. I, I drank it. I drank it. The peels and we didn't. Strong. Little, a little bitter right now in my stomach. I've been popping those, um, what do you call them? The um, Rolay Toms and stuff. I've been popping them like crazy. <laughs> the joke. Boy, you people are so serious. So it means that it was God's doing as a result of the sin of mankind. He subjected the earth, etc., etc., to futility as a consequence to our sin. Number three, it says, the verse says that it's that God subjected it in hope. He subjected it in hope. I don't know if you noticed from your reading in the book of Genesis... That almost immediately after God, after the cursing of the ground, etc., etc., et God made a promise that he was going to restore all things. Almost immediately he made the promise. That just, it doesn't just include the redemption of mankind, but it also includes the redemption of the created world, of the material world, and the animal kingdom, and all of that stuff. Because sin has impacted everything, including the ground, as we stated and it's the reason why the, 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 the material world is longing, longing, longing for redemption. Verse 21. So probably be the last one, maybe. It's um, 10 after. The following verse defines the object of the hope. The following verse defines the object of the hope that, that has been given. It is the hope that the creation will be Delivered. Verse 21 reads that the creation itself will be, set, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is God's promise for all of creation. I, I think it's in, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, somewhere along there, where God says that one day he's going to burn up the heavens and the earth, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Numbers twenty three nineteen. God has given the earth, the created, the material world, a promise as well. Because it's included in the promise. And one day is only a matter of time before it all comes to pass. However, according to this verse, the redemption of God's creation will occur as a result of the redemption of his children. Now, when we say creation, we talk about the non-rational element of God's creation. Non-rational, not mankind, not humankind. That... In other words, creation will one day share in the glory associated with the redemption of the children of God and not the other way around. Uh, my wife and I own a cottage in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And one day I went there. One day we were hiking out in the woods because it's a, it's a, I don't know, 150 acres or something like that, maybe more than that, of wooded area. And there are cottages. And it's a Christian campground. Everybody there is Christian. We were hiking with Gabriel, our son, in the woods, and I saw certain stones laid out in a certain pattern. 
Uh, and I knew that. I knew what it was. I knew that it was associated with, because when my father's witchcraft and that sort of stuff, I knew what that meant, right, without going into detail. And then I noticed some, some particular stones wrapped around certain trees in a certain pattern. And I knew what that meant, especially the logos that were listed that were there. And I knew that it had to do with the occult, with some pagan ideology, some pagan philosophy. And then I met the person, the, the group leader, because she came into our camp one day. We had a special event, and we had a major meal out there. We, had, we were out underneath the, the large uh, pavilion that's on the campground. And she was there. Somebody wanted to introduce her to me because that person was deceived by her language because she came across as a believer. And so I sat down and talked to her. And she started using phrases and, and words associated with, with Hinduism and Buddhism. And I picked it up just like that. And so I lovingly and graciously challenged her. Long story short, she told me that she, she owned her house in the woods just beyond where I saw those things out in the woods. And then she talked to me really, really um, carefully about what she's into. You talk about tree huggers and people who exalt the earth above mankind, etc. And Hinduism teaches a lot about that. That, that we, have to, we have to denounce what we know to be true and embrace or appropriate, become one with the universe around us. Go figure so the point is that there, there are religions out there that exalt creation above mankind. The, the material world or the stars, astrology delves into that too. Like we are less than and not greater than, not superior to the rest of God's creation here on earth. It's nonsense. It's just nonsense. God loves us, his created being. And this one particular verse lays out that the created world or the material world, the inanimate world, is going to share in our redemption and not the other way around. Not the other way around. And that the material world is only going to be redeemed fully after we are redeemed fully, the children of God. And not the other way around. We are. They're going to share. The, they get to participate in the redemption. You and I, it's bestowed upon us. We are directly involved in that process, that redemptive process. The world just shares in our glory. Look at what it says. Look at the, read the verse again. For, the crea- for that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Mm, that says a lot right there. And that's extremely important. Um, I'm going to stop right there. I'll pick it up. I'll pick it up next week. Can I get the worship team to come up at this time? I'll pick it up next week and we'll go on to um, some of the other verses as well. I'm, it's a shame because it's going to, it was really going to get good. It was really going to get good. Stand with me, church. Stand with me. Stand with me. Was the main idea of the passage. The main idea is that God will one day very soon accomplish, fulfill, complete his redemptive process. That redemptive process that we are involved in. It's not complete yet. I mean, it, in many ways it feels because of this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful freedom. Wonderful freedom that we enjoy as believers. Not to have condemnation. 
To live knowing that the wrath of God does not abide upon us, that's glorious right there. Might as well be heaven in some sense. But the reality is the process is not done yet because sin still exists. Sinful nature is still a reality. But one day very soon is going to come to pass. Bow your heads with me for a moment as we think about that thought. And take this as an opportunity to reflect. Talk to God. Talk to God. Thank him for what he's doing in your life. Times are tough from time to time. Put it in perspective. You're going to be redeemed. It's not going to last always. That trial, that difficulty, deficiency in the bank account. Mm, I know a lot about that. The issue, the health problems, this too will pass. And God is going to complete you one day very soon. It's going to happen. You can take that to the bank. It's going to happen. Glory will, the, the fullness of God's glory will one day very soon envelop us who are in this room. If you know Jesus. And imperfection is going to be eradicated. Sin is going to be eradicated. The condition of this age, this present time, as Paul put it, this age, gone, behind us, a thing of the past. And we will be able to rejoice in the presence of the Lord God for eternity. For eternity. God is going to restore all things. He's going to burn up the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says that clearly. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. And 2 Peter chapter 3. A new heaven and a new earth. And we get to spend eternity right here in the new earth. Father, thank you so much for this time in your presence. Thank you so much for this particular lesson, this teaching. Help us, Lord God, to reflect on it. Not to dismiss it. Because as I stated already to your people, life is hard. And it is possible for us to lose sight if we don't carefully sustain the appropriate perspective, the biblical perspective regarding your promise for our future. Thank you so much for it, Father. Thank you so much for all of it. And thank you so much for the fact that today there is no condemnation. That today I have freedom. I have liberty today because of your presence in my life. And I live daily with the hope that one day, one day, sin will be a thing of the past. We thank you so much for that today, Lord God. We praise you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people say,
Father, thank you so much. We love you. We praise you. We magnify your holy name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your suffering. Thank you for the humility. Thank you, Lord God, for giving yourself so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Thank you for this wonderful salvation we live with today because of your presence in our lives. And once again, thank you so much for the promise, for the hope that we live with, for the assurance that you've given to us that one day this too shall pass. The pain and the suffering and the oppression and everything else that makes up this present time, this age, that one day is going to be a thing of the past and we will spend eternity in your presence. Father, we love you and we praise you in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Um, Don't forget that we have a meeting, a business meeting at this time. In the room right here to my left, to your right. If you are a member, you are encouraged to attend.